You're listening to the Harvest Christian Fellowship Weekend Message Podcast. To learn more about our community, like what we believe and how you can take a next step, visit us online at hcfcornwall.ca or join us for one of our services this weekend, Sunday mornings at 9.15 or 11 here at 847 York Street. Good morning. Wow, are you guys having fun this morning or what? It's so fun worshiping together when, um, you know, we just believe from the scriptures that praise opens that portal into the heavenly realm and just uh, allows us to experience the presence of God in a very felt and pronounced way. And when we all do that, when we're all opening that door as we were this morning, it's just so wonderful to sense God in a powerful way like we did. So thank you, worship team, but thank you, worshipers. You're really the worship team out there, and man, you guys just went for it. And as, uh, as I'm sure it was your experience, as was mine, it was, wow, it's just so, so amazing. And it's in those moments that we believe that you can know God and know him better as you personally experience him, uh, not only here during the week, but at home as you learn to cultivate an attitude of worship. Online, how are you doing this morning? We just love our online people. This week I went into the Toyota dealership and I was greeted by Troy Hickman, uh, who oversees that dealership, and he greeted me with, hey, pastor. I said, I'll give you a shout out. Troy attends Harvest online like many, many other people do regularly, and we just love our online congregation as much as we love our in-room congregation. And uh, he told me that his wife kicks him to the basement when he watches church because he likes to play it loud. And I think this morning, this morning would be a, a, a great time to play it loud. I want to give a shout out to Ellen Bocas, who prayed with us last week at the end of the service online to receive Jesus into her life. Come on, give it up for Ellen. We just love that. I want to remind you that uh, we're wanting to support a sister church, Motion Church in, in uh, Morrisburg. And on April the 1st, they are doing an event. They'd like to expand the territory that God has given them and see an expression of their church in Chesterville. And so they're going to have a worship event in the uh, Nelson LaPrade, 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 the Nelson LaPrade Center. It's 9 William Street. And uh, there's still some seats. You have to register. It's limited seating. But let's create an atmosphere of worship in that place so that first-timers in that area can experience uh, worship and experience the Lord. Just before we jump into part seven of the ancient paths, um, I would like to just say a word uh, about what's happening in Australia and Sydney right now in the main campus of Hillsong Church. If you weren't aware, um, there are a number of things taking place that the media have picked up on. Discovery Plus Channel is doing an expose, and um, it's kind of difficult, to say the least, as a great couple, uh, Brian and, and Bobby Houston, have given their lives since the 80s to see probably, arguably, one of the greatest impacting churches uh, in the world, uh, especially in the area of, of worship. And some of the music that we sing here comes from that church, as well as so many other benefits. It's always um, painful when humanity uh, bleeds through um, in an area of, of church. And there are some, definitely some things that are being investigated. And to those things, I, I, I have nothing to say, nor can I speak to, because I'm not there. I'm not a part of the church government there, obviously. That is making decisions about 
kind of the what next. Um, it began with um, Carl Lentz in Hillsong, New York, um, being asked to leave the pastoral post that he was in because of uh, moral indiscretions is really the wrong word. It's not strong enough, but the many things that were happening there and now with Brian Houston himself. And I would simply say this, that we're being invited by the oversight of that church to focus on the things that have been done in the name of the Lord over all of these years and to pray for a church that obviously is going through some great difficulties when things happen in leadership. And, and, uh, and we hate it when that happens, but we don't want to throw away everything that God has done because of the frailty and sinfulness of man, which we all are aware of. I'm not defending nor excusing that, I'm simply stating it. The principle that I try to hold to, and I would ask us as a church to hold to, is when Saul in his last days and David was coming up behind him as king, that it was clear long before Saul died in the battle that I'm referencing that God had already switched the kingdom and given it to David. But David would not grab a hold of it. He waited until it was presented to him um, clearly by the Lord. There was a time and a place. And he loved Saul. And he loved that he was able to be the king that he was because of the king that Saul was even though Saul didn't finish strong uh, in, in his life. When he found out that Saul had died in battle, he laments and says, oh, how the mighty have fallen. He laments that a mighty warrior fell in battle. He says, tell it not in Gath and proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. What he was saying was, we're not going to be just blabbing this all over the place because there'll be enough of that done by people who would post themselves as enemies. We're not enemies of this church. This is an amazing church. We love what they've done. We love what they're doing. And I'd like to pray right now that God will give them guidance um, and wisdom in these days to come. Father, I just pray, Lord, as we've enjoyed personally so many things from Hillsong and, and even Karen, Lord, as we see the excellence uh, of worship and, and, and just of her media capabilities and our online presence, which all came trained from that great school. So we would just pray today that we will not proclaim it in the streets. We will not speak of these things loosely or without discretion. But today, humbly knowing our own frailty, we pray for Pastor Brian, Carl Lance, others, Lord. We pray, Lord, that your grace would be sufficient for them. And Lord, that there would be brothers and sisters who will not reject them, not throw them under the bus, but would embrace them in their moments of weakness and say, oh, how the mighty have fallen, but we want to preserve you and see a future for your life. So Lord, we just pray for wisdom for the government of, those, uh, of that uh, particular network of churches, Lord, that their future would be better than even their past. In Jesus' name today, everyone said, yeah, I appreciate you letting me do that, and I did want to just say a couple words about that. All right, so your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. We're talking about the Bible, not just any book, but the Holy Bible. The Bible, that word just means in Latin, just means book, but it's not any book. It is the word of God. And in this third installment, I want to talk of seven in the ancient past, but three talking about the Bible. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. could preach a whole sermon on each one of those words, and we talked about that last week. And uh, I just want to take a second and talk about maybe why would I do 
a little bit different out of the ordinary for my style. Um, I, I don't often kind of get down to brass tacks and kind of line upon line and teach and be real, you know, it seems super practical. Um, and so it is different, admittedly, as we've talked about, and I've talked to you about the Bible. And why would I take the time to do that? Someone who's been around for a little while mentioned to me, and they said, wow, I feel like I'm kind of in the beginner's class. Um, and, uh, and so it's a reminder for those of us that were in the beginner's class a long time ago <laughs> or whenever ago, and for so many that uh, reading the Bible is new for you. And we never want to take for granted that there are always people that are here that are new and discovering uh, their relationship with Jesus. And so the reason I would do a series like this is kind of uh, taking a snapshot of the day that we live in where there are a couple of extremes happening in churches. Um, and one of them is, and I'm, we talk about kind of a religious or we point in the New Testament, the Pharisees um, that you know, really just kind of did this with people, with the law, and said, don't ask questions. If you ask questions, you're rebellious. And I hope that's never been your experience here at Harvest. And if it has, uh, we fired that person, and we're really sorry that you experienced that. No, that, that we want people to be able to ask questions. We want people to, to have, there, there needs to be honest dialogue about what the book talks about. And the church hasn't always been honest about that. And like the Pharisees in the New Testament, sometimes there's an attitude in church where it's just kind of, don't ask questions. You're rebellious if you are. How dare you ask why we do what we do? Because it's in the Bible, that's why. What happens with an attitude like that is that for someone who doesn't understand the Bible, they receive it in a way that they shouldn't the way the Pharisees were trying to present it in the days of Jesus. And if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, he, he has line after line. You've heard it said, and he was talking about what the Pharisees said, but I tell you, and he explained what his words, what his words meant actually, and there were times it was hard to hear and hard to believe. But he was doing it in a way that he said, if you will embrace this as my word, I'll give you the grace and the power to fulfill it. You don't do it externally. And so many people want to live this book externally, but Jesus said it has to be internal. Say internal. And so these, these, the, the, the pendulum, and so we have kind of ultra-right right-wing Bible thumpers, we, I don't mean to be facetious about that or cruel, but people that it would be more about what it says, and it's an external. We've talked about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and trying to live there, and it's impossible. But on the other side of the pendulum is a reaction from some churches that said, we've blown it so bad that what we need to do is kind of just more of a kumbaya, kind of just settle in and lots of love. And, and uh, the Bible, oh, yeah, the Bible, that's a good book, you know. The Bible's good, and we like the principles. But let's maybe like the story of Jonah, where a big giant fish swallows a man. That, that's not humanly possible. And he lived in the, fish, the fish's belly for three days. And then the fish literally got sick of him and puked him up on the beach. And then, and then he went off and, and preached in Nineveh. And, you know, there's probably some good principles there. But that kind of offends practicality and human reasoning. So that can't possibly 
really be actually the way it happened. Or there are churches that, because hell is a hard topic to talk about, and yet it's in the Bible. And um, churches that are taking it out of the Bible, because they're like, it's too hard to believe that God would make a place like that. And I, I know it's in the Bible, but it must mean something else. And so instead of having the honest conversations and 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 helping one another as we read the book. And so the pendulum, so it's gone on one side, this, on the other side, hey, whatever you like. You like something in there, great. Take it out and it's yours. If you don't like it, and, I, and we hear this phrase over and over, I just don't believe that. I just don't believe that. I'm not just talking about the Bible. <laughs> I mean, it's hard, even right now, social media particularly, where people will espouse some crazy ideas. There's no data. There's no, and they're just going, I, I believe it. And you're like, you know, they discovered a long time ago that the earth isn't flat, right? And they're like, no, no, I don't believe that. I, I, I believe it's flat. Well, why? I just believe it. And this inherent power in the belief system, and if you believe it, it must be true. And so contrary to a philosophy today called deconstruction, deconstructionism, which is creeping into the church, that we tear down ancient, you know, if it's old and if we've held to it, society's held to it, let's not anymore, let's deconstruct it, and let's just start all over again and figure it out for ourselves. And some of that's creeping into church circles and um, deconstructing the idea that there are absolutes in the book and that the book is an authority. So the reason that I've done the series is because I want to balance these tensions. And I don't want to do this. <laughs> and I also don't want to go, hey, don't matter. Don't matter what, how we live or what we do. Or... And so I started this series on the ancient past that we want the ancient past, not because they're old, but because they're eternal. And then I ended with, I started first with these paths are important. And then I ended with truth because remember, Jesus was full of grace. It's grace first, because without grace, then it's this, and this never gets in here, right? Rightfully so, because who wants to let it in here when it hurts so much out here? Because we're not honest with the conversation that you need the power of the Holy Spirit to even get into this book. Then I don't want to be on the other side either, where it's uncomfortable to talk about things, then we don't. And so we're not honest, and we're not declaring that Jesus said that this is the authority that we're to live with. So, not humanly possible. I guess Jonah offends my mind too. But I choose by faith to believe it because it's the Word of God. And I have learned in my life that when I put faith in the absolute of Scripture, it's never done me wrong. <laughs> that the ancient path lights up and the roadway that God shows me. And, and you can say, it, well, you know, it doesn't, it offends the human mind and I don't believe that. Well, what about the virgin birth then? Do we just throw that out? Do we throw out the resurrection next week and Easter? You see, all of those things, everything that's in the book makes the before and after stories possible. When we were one way, and we're going to talk about it at Easter, the blind man said, I was once, they get, please explain what's happened to you. Ah, uh, I used to be blind, and now I can see. For him, it was simple. But the religious minds were like, oh, how could, I, no, what, 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 what really happened here? I don't know. 
I used to be blind, and now I see. And we're going to celebrate my last point today that, I'm, that I'll, I'll disclose it about how, why can we trust this book? Because it has the power to transform life. I'm going to give you seven reasons this morning why we can uh, trust and put our lives uh, on, on, the, on, on the foundations of the Bible on this book. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away, Jesus said. They're powerful and true. Jesus, I just pray you'd help us today. And for those of us, Lord, that it might be new to think about the Bible in terms of the authority, the written authority, that we rest and, and base our life. The wise man builds his house on the rock, and when the wind blows in it will of life, you said that his life stays standing because he does the word. He didn't just read it. He aligned his life with it. She aligned her life with it. Lord, give us the grace and the power to do that today. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Seven reasons you can trust the Bible. Number one, the Bible is historically accurate. And by that, what I mean uh, is that history, when we look at history books and we're determining, uh, not there's a trend today that if we don't like somebody in history or they did something that we don't like today, we get to erase them from history. I don't think that we should erase people. I don't think that we should say it's okay uh, that their humanity uh, and, and the things that they did wrong. But, but history, we want to get it right. We want to know what has taken place. And so historical records are really important. Psalm 33, 4 says, the word of the Lord is right and true. Say right. Say true. The book's right. It just is. And it's true. And history upholds, the historical record upholds that. And there are three standards that historians look at to say, is this document historically accurate? Number one is, were there eyewitness accounts? And there are a lot of writings um, and religious writings from different religions in the world where somebody had some encounter where they were all alone and maybe an angel appeared to them or whatever the account is, but nobody can substantiate. It was just them and the, just them and the, the deity that they're writing about. And so there's no eyewitness account to what they wrote down, and it's like, you need to believe it, because I said so. But the Bible is, is inherent. It was written, all the accounts, Old Testament, New, account, uh, New Testament, that the other people, real live people, and like you say, how, when I read the genealogies, and this guy was married to that guy, and they had this guy, the Bible was going ahead and recording historically the real live people that now can be verified in historic records. And so those eyewitness people that saw what was written, the gospel, three and a half years of people following Jesus and writing down, and we have that historical record. And many of those records can be substantiated by other writings. Uh, to be historically accurate, there needs to be archaeological confirmation that the places in the Bible actually existed. Uh, a number of years ago, I had the great privilege of doing some ministry in the UK, and I got to spend some time uh, in London, England, which was really, I just want to go back to London. I've been twice. It is amazing. The fish and chips, there's nothing in North America that I've ever, that, and, and, and with newsprint with the ink coming off still in your greasy fish and chips. It's just so good. And, but I got to go to the Royal British Museum, and um, that was, like, you need three, four, five days just to get through the museum, unless you go with Christina and you do the express route. And uh, she, 
she, she loves, and we're very different that way. So I'm like, wow, and I want to study. And she's like skipping along going, look at that. That's amazing. And so just very, very different personalities. And she, she could do it and get it all in. She'd have all, but I'm stopping, and I'm more methodical. And, and, but we get along really well, don't we? We mix those two things. You teach me to have fun, and I'll never teach you to be serious because there's not a serious bone in your body. And that's what I love about you. You're so amazing. So um, if I can have the next slide up, I, I got to see this picture uh, of an archaeological dig in Nineveh. Maybe it's not there. It's not there. I got a head shaking at the back. It's not there. All right. So a rock carving that we don't have a picture of that would have been maybe in the side of a building in Nineveh. And I'm standing there looking at it as I'm standing in the Royal Museum. And I'm going, Nineveh, that, that's, that's where Jonah went to preach. And then I checked the dates. And that particular rock carving was contemporary to Jonah. And it wasn't written about Jonah. There was nothing in the rock carving about Jonah, but what fascinated me, and I, it kind of clicked, of how, how powerful the archaeological evidence is, is that maybe Jonah was standing right beside that building's uh, uh, rock carving, and as it, it has information or advertising, whatever it was, and Jonah's preaching about the goodness of God, and, and, and right there, that rock carving was a part of it. And so archaeological confirmation uh, throughout the Scriptures and, and, and it very powerfully tells us that we, the historical record of this book, is accurate. At the turn of the 19th century, um, we didn't have archaeological evidence for the Hittite Empire. And the Hittites are mentioned 50 times in the Old Testament. And so, like, kind of important. Not an obscure people group. And they had, so you know, all of the people groups are being discovered and found archaeologically. Wow, that's what the Bible said. And there it is. And so um, the Hittites hadn't been found until 1906. And there was an archaeological dig that um, unearthed the Hittite empire and was able to verify everything the Bible says about the Hittites. Number two, the Bible can be trusted because it's scientifically accurate. This is a fun one. Uh, I have a science background. I have a degree in biology, but, but gave myself to all, in some way, all of the sciences, but specifically I majored in biology. Psalm 148, verses 5 and 6, let every created thing give praise to the Lord, which we, we fulfilled that this morning. For he issued his command, and they came into being. He set them in place forever and ever. His decree will never be revoked. His decree will never be revoked. We hear this phrase, especially during COVID, trust the science. Yeah, okay, so there was some nervous laughter in the room. And here's the thing about science is that it evolves and it changes as we get more knowledge and we do more data and we study. But as you look at different topics scientifically, even when I was taking science uh, at the University of Western Ontario almost 40 years ago, we were just discovering how the cells in our body talk to each other. So the brain talks, but the cells talk to each other. It's not just, it's really fascinating. And they came up and devised a theory as to how cells in the body were talking to each other. And that since has changed. Um, they've, they've got more information. And the science has evolved. The science is broader. And we're trusting that science more as it proves itself out, uh, over and over. But here's the deal. If you go back 
into, uh, go back in history, and I mean centuries and, and millennia, that there have been some things held to and thought about that we've since realized, well, that was just nuts. That was just crazy. How did they ever believe that? But based on the knowledge that they had in the time. The Bible was written over 1,600 years. We talked about that last week. And so you would presuppose that over 1,600 years, science would have changed based on knowledge that they would have gained in those 1,600 years. But the decree of the Lord, the word of the Lord, can't be revoked. And what we see in the Bible is the Bible just slides these little one-liners in, scientific information, long before society or uh, men discovered what God already knew, and God declared in his word. So the science in the Bible didn't change. And what I'm saying is, over 1,600 years, maybe a few things slipped in as the writers just wrote it because that's what they believed in the day. Trust the science. No, trust the Lord. Let me show you a couple examples of what I mean. So for centuries, um, the earth was thought to be flat, even though some people have resurrected that. If you sail too far in the world, you would fall off the edge. And that's, that's what really was the whole premise and the thought that the earth uh, must be flat. Because when we look, we see, that's what we see. Well, um, in uh, 700 B.C., Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, uh, Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 40, verse 22. He's enthroned above the circle of the earth. God's enthroned, and specifically the circle of the earth. That Hebrew word we get our English word globe or sphere from. Oh, it's just an accident. No, it's just God sliding that in. Someday they're going to figure it out that I made it round, and let's just get the scientific record correct, and we're not going to. And so God's every, remember I told you, every word is in the Bible because God wants it there, sphere, globe. How about this one? For centuries, ancients thought there had to be something holding the earth up. As we looked, in the, looked into the sky, we see the moon. and this, what, what is, this, is it just hanging there? It, it must, something. And so the Greeks said it was Atlas. Atlas, the god of, you know, holding the earth up. And, and Hindus, uh, they had all kinds of different kind of mythical animals holding up. And, and so the ancients couldn't get their mind around how can it just be hanging in the sky. And so Job said this. Uh, we believe that Job, probably lived around the time of Abraham and wrote the book of Job before Moses uh, completed um, and started writing. And so probably the oldest written uh, is Job. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. It's just there, said Job. And Job must have went, are you sure? Are you sure about that? Like, you want me to write that? You want me to write, it's just hanging there? Really? God, you want me to write that? All right, your book. I'll just write it the way you want to write. <laughs> Jeremiah 33, 22. The stars of the sky cannot be counted. Well, that's interesting because a great astronomer in 150 years before Christ, uh, Hipparchus, uh, said there are 850. And he cataloged them. And given the scientific stuff and, and how he was viewing the night sky. He's actually a genius. And he is in our history books as one of the greatest astronomers. And he began all this, and he cataloged 850 stars. There might be a few more than that, because 300 years later, another astronomer, Ptolemy, said, now he got it wrong, and the science evolved. He said, there's 1,022. 
Well, science today would say, nah, you can't count them. Because every time we get another telescope that looks on it, we find another galaxy. And so they'll keep counting. And, uh, and Jeremiah's probably right, because in the book, and it's scientifically accurate. Uh, one, a couple more here. Uh, actually, one more. So throughout the centuries, the death toll due to, um, due to disease uh, ran rampant through Europe, the bubonic plague, because they didn't understand contagious diseases. And so COVID, whether we like it or not, um, and whatever you might think about all these things, the science said quarantine. If you quarantine, you can't spread the disease. And so the, stopping the spread of disease that's infectiously contracted, that's what we do. We quarantine them. But we didn't do that in Europe and lost thousands and thousands and thousands of people uh, all to different diseases. And in Leviticus 13.4, it says the priest will quarantine that person for seven days. When there was an infectious disease, the person was quarantined. Just saying, there's some good stuff in the book. Are you following me this morning? Hope you're finding this interesting. And we're saying we can trust the science of the book. And there's, no, there's nothing that contradicts, even though during the history when the book was written, that science has changed. God's has not. The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. The word is right and it's true. Say right. Say true. Number three, the Bible is prophetically accurate. So God went way out on a limb, knowing the beginning from the end, and told us about things that would happen before they happened. We call that prophecy. And he wrote it in the book. That's kind of a risk, because if one of those doesn't come to pass, your book just came under suspect of not really being God's book. And the Bible is filled with in the Old Testament, prophesying about what would happen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before it did. And so I have a container full of ping pong balls, and uh, um, I play ping pong with Seth, and he likes the orange ones because he can spin those and beat me. I like the white ones because they're kind of dead, and I can just return them and hopefully sneak in a point every now and then and beat him. And uh, so we have two different kinds. Yes, we have more orange ones because he likes to beat me more. Anyway. There are 10 ping pong balls, and nine of them are orange, and one of them is white. And so if you took math in um, high school, you knew about probability. If you took math in high school and you're having a moment right now because that was really horrible for you, <laughs> grace and peace be yours right now, and don't, I don't want to lose you right now. And if you begin to trigger, just ask the person beside you to lay hands on you and pray, and we'll just deal with that, all right? I really liked math and probability. I really got into probability. And so the probability of pulling out the white one is 1 in 10. 1 in 10. Well, there's some really smart mathematicians that started thinking about the prophecies in the Old Testament, and they devised algorithms to discover what, are, what is the possibility of one person, Jesus, not all of the prophecies, just the ones about Jesus, how the Messiah would come, be born in a manger, um, and, and all, you know, Emmanuel, God, with all of the Christmas verses we read in Isaiah, 700 years before it happened, and, and way more prophecies than that. But Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies, just eight of them, would be one in 10 with 17 zeros after it, all right? One in 10, with, and that one, to the exponent, if you remember, that's 17 zeros, we don't have a name for that number. It's so big. It's like a gazillion, billion, trillion, mammalian. It's just a really big number. And to help us understand, if we were to cover Saskatchewan in two feet of loonies, 
and let's just paint one red and toss it in the bunch. And I will lower you down in a helicopter and you can root around. The chances of you finding that one are one in that number. Two feet deep of toonies all across Saskatchewan. It's too big for our brains to compute. And even the analogy doesn't do it justice. Well, let's just up it a little bit because there wasn't eight. There was way more than eight. What if it was 16? That would be one in 10 to the 45, 45 zeros. Well, there wasn't 16. There was way more than that. What if it was 48? That's one in 10 to 157 zeros. Impossible. Impossible. What am I saying today? I'm saying that the prophetic fulfillment in the scriptures, it is undeniable proof that we can stand and say, the book got it right. It's right and true. This is God's book. No other book can do this. Read Psalm 22. It's one of the clearest descriptions of what Jesus would go through on the cross. Isaiah 53, clearest descriptions before capital punishment on the cross was ever even considered or thought about. How does that happen? The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever wrote the book. How are we doing? All right. Number four. The Bible is thematically unified. I won't really talk about this. We did it last week. Uh, Luke 24, 27. The, and beginning with Moses, Jesus said, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all Scripture concerning himself. The fact that so many different authors wrote, and yet there's one thing, and it's Jesus. Number five. This one's kind of important for proof. The Bible was trusted by Jesus. <laughs> he said, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He said, all of it, all of it is the word of God. And Jesus said, I trust it. And so I want my followers to trust this. And so if we've said, I want to be a Christ follower, I want to enjoy uh, all of this wonderful things of following Jesus, your word is a lamp unto my feet. We can trust the book, the holy book. Number six, the Bible has survived attacks. It's not always been a book everybody loves. Throughout society, the Bible is the most despised, derided, denied, disputed, dissected, outlawed, and destroyed book ever. But it's still here. Number one bestseller. How does that happen? A great French uh, philosopher, Voltaire, he once said, and he, he was uh, in the late 1600s into the 1700s, he once said, in 100 years, the Bible would be forgotten, and it will be an unknown book. He may have visited Quebec, because I can't do a France, French accent. That's what he said. And I am not trying to be facetious about Voltaire. He was a great philosopher, but he had funny ideas about the Bible. And 100 years later, just a sense of humor, I think, that heaven has. A hundred years later, the Geneva Bible Society had purchased his home and put the Geneva Bible Society in the house of the philosopher who said, in 100 years, we'll never remember the Bible again. And the Bible Society was pumping Bibles out of his house. <laughs> Number seven, as we're ending this morning, the team's coming up. The Bible... has life-changing power. And if you've been a disciple and a follower of Jesus who've made the decision that I'm gonna ask many people to make today or to renew your 
your relationship with this book, to love it, to live it, to do this book, to allow it to get into you, not on you, but in you. There are stories that we're celebrating before and after, and thank you for all of you who have been making your stories public so that we can enjoy them. And be excited about Easter Sunday, the before and after, Good Friday, as Jesus approached the cross and after the resurrection. And we get to celebrate the Easter event. It's before and after for those of us to be recipients of the after-resurrection power. That's for us. Resurrection is not something in history. It's an event that we can know today. We're going to celebrate the life-changing power of Jesus. It says that his, these words are literally his life why do we read the Word? Why do we live in this Word? Why do we trust this Word? Because it is the very life of God in us. Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, that means to remain in them, live in them, dwell in them, get them on the inside. How do you do that? Just consistently throughout your life, giving yourself to this and saying, I don't understand it always, but I'm going to trust it. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, Holy Spirit, no, I don't want to change that. I don't think I can. The Holy Spirit says, well, we're going to work on that for a little while, and you're going to see that I can. I know you can't, but you're going to see that I can. That addiction that someone told you that you'll never be able to break through as we were just celebrating today. God says you're going to break through because my word has promises. Get them inside and let them work. If you hold to my teaching, live in them, dwell in them. Not, not just, you say, I've casually read the Bible. It didn't change my life. Right. I'm not talking about a casual reading. I'm talking about faith in the book. This is God's word. It is a lamp unto my feet. Then you will know the truth, who's a person, Jesus, and the truth will set you free. I'd like to put a prayer up on the screen today. And I want you, I'm going to read it to you. And then if you can say yes to this, I would like you with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength in a moment to read it with me, but we're going to pr pray it. Just today, draw a line in the sand and say, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I'll read and pray and then obey the B-I-B-L-E. If you're old like me, you said that in kids' church when you were little. Let me just read it. Dear God, from this day forward, I accept the Bible as your flawless word to me. And I, will, and, and I will make it the final authority for my life, even when I don't understand it. That just means that it's okay to ask questions. No one's going to tell you you're rebellious here. No one's going to tell you that, oh, don't ask that question. We'll enter in to open an honest dialogue. When it's not popular... Easier, even when I, when I don't like it, you are God and I'm not. Thank you for loving me enough to speak to me through your word. I want to love your word, learn your word, and live your word. All right, you know the content. I wouldn't ask you to pray it unless you knew it. Uh, look at the screen. Let's pray it in unison today. Make it a prayer. Make it a prayer from your heart. If you're not ready, that's okay. We believe that the Holy Spirit will get you ready to be able to say this. And if you're not ready, tell the Holy Spirit, I want to be ready. Just not, I'm not there yet. He's okay with that. He'll, he'll walk with you and for you as, and give you the strength. Today, those of us that are sensing this and the grace for this, ready? Dear God, come on with all, all your voice. Ready? Dear God, 
From this day forward, I accept the Bible as your flawless word to me, and I will make it the final authority for my life, even when I don't understand it, when it's not popular, easy, or even when I don't like it. You are God. I am not. Thank you for loving me enough to speak to me through your word. I want to love your word, learn your word, and live your word. Everybody said? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Sorry I cut off your clap. That was exciting, wasn't it? <laughs> but with every head bowed and eye closed in this moment right now as we've been praying, every week we do this at Harvest. Last week, Ellen made a decision online because we opened up space to say, it's super important to know that Jesus did something 2,000 years ago, and we call it Easter today, but he did it for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus. You see, he took what I deserved and what you deserve. We are all born sinners separated from God. Sin is real, but there's a real solution for it. And that's not trying to do enough good things in life to try to counterbalance all the bad things because you never will and you never can. As Dean shared in his story, as he pursued a hedonistic and materialistic life, he said, I came up empty. I couldn't find, I couldn't find significance in life or meaning until I found Jesus. Well, we're the ones that are lost. Jesus knows who you are, where you are today. He might just be knocking on your heart's door right in this moment, in this service. If you're here today and you would say yes to what he did for you, it's not enough that you would say, yes, I, I believe in the cross and Easter, and that's good enough for my mom or my dad or maybe people that are here. No, he's offering it to you today. He's holding out eternal life to you today. The Bible says by receiving it, saying yes to it. I believe that's for me. It's in the Bible. I've heard it today. If that's for me, I want that. Then I would offer it to you very practically today in the form of simply saying, I want to I'd like to receive Jesus today. I want to pray with you to do that. If that's you today, with every head bowed in this place, just for privacy in this moment, would you lift your hand so I could see it? Anywhere in this room, just so I can see. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. At the back, yes, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Anyone else today? I want to invite you today. If you've raised your hand to receive Jesus today online, and it happens uh, so often online, where you're with us in the room today. Jesus is talking to you right now. Congregation, let's pray this prayer with these folks that have raised their hand. Come on, in faith, pray this with us. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me, that you died for me. I receive your forgiveness now. Take away all my sin. Put your new life in me. I'm excited to live my new life with you in my heart. Amen. Hey, come on. You prayed that prayer. We believe you're born again. Do us the greatest honor if you prayed that prayer in the room today that you would see someone in a green shirt today and just say, I prayed the prayer. We have a gift of a Bible we would love to give you. Online, we want to tell you what your next steps are. We don't want you just at this point. You have a journey ahead of you, and we'd love to explain that to you. God bless you, Harvest. We're going to be dismissed in a moment as we just finish worshiping the Lord. So washes
Have an awesome rest of your day, and we'll see you next week.